You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in November of 2022 with episode 432 of The Corbett Report podcast, The CIA and the News Media 2.0. Now, bear in mind, 2.0 is an important distinction here, and one that I am going to elaborate on in this podcast, because I know that you, as clued-in, switched-on Corbett Reporteers, will know all about the history of the CIA and the news media, right? Uh, If, for no other reason than the fact that it has been openly acknowledged and maybe not often reported on, but openly acknowledged and documented for decades. And at the very least, I think hopefully by now, most of my audience will at least be familiar with the bare bones of this story, whether or not they know that it comes, for example, from Bernstein's reporting in Rolling Stone in 1970s about the church committee hearings and what came out there about the CIA and the news media and the reporting that was done along those lines. Etc., etc. As I say, I would expect that a good portion of my audience already knows about that, if for no other reason than the fact that you will recall that 11 years ago I was documenting all of this in a post that I did called The CIA and the News Media. It is uncontested fact that the CIA has enjoyed a long and intimate relationship with some of the largest news organizations in the world and has used this relationship to manipulate, censor, and even fabricate news stories in support of its own covert agenda. The story of that relationship was told most famously and most comprehensively by Carl Bernstein in Rolling Stone magazine in 1977. In his landmark article entitled The CIA and the Media, Bernstein outlined the history of the agency's use of assets in the news media from the 1950s through the 70s. The ties between the intelligence community and the news organizations were formalized at the highest levels of management and ownership and included, according to Bernstein, cooperation with media tycoons like Arthur Hayes Sulzberger of the New York Times, Henry Luce of Time Inc., and William Paley of CBS. Toward the end of his career, Sig Mickelson, the head of CBS News in the 1950s and the man credited with launching the career of the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, admitted that CBS News worked closely with the CIA. Uh, At CBS, uh, we uh, had been contacted by the CIA. As a matter of fact, by the time I became the head of the whole news and public affairs operation in 1954, ships had been established, and I was told about them and asked if I'd carry on with them. I think it was entirely in order for our correspondents at that time uh, to make use of uh, CIA agent uh, chiefs uh, of station and other members of the executive staff of CIA as sources of information which were useful in their assessments of world conditions. Would you say that continues today? Well, I, yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations of the period of the 1970s, uh, it seems to me that a reporter's got to be much more circumspect in doing it now, or he runs the risk of uh, at least being looked at with considerable disfavor by the public. I think you've got to be much more careful about it. The Bernstein article drew heavily on the findings of the Church Committee of 1975 and 1976, a congressional investigation into the actions of the intelligence community, to identify the various types of associations between the CIA and the media, from legitimate, accredited reporters who worked with the agency or carried out tasks on its behalf, often on a voluntary basis, 
to stringers and freelancers directly on the agency pay payroll, to columnists and commentators like C.L. Sulzberger of the New York Times and the Alsop brothers of the Saturday Evening Post and Newsweek, who could be counted on to insert agency-friendly comments and editorials into leading news outlets, thus effectively setting the, the agenda for the national media. The Church Committee exposed some of the dirt of the CIA's interference in domestic media, officially established as Operation Mockingbird by Frank Wisner, the director of the agency's covert intelligence branch, the Office of Special Projects, in 1948. However, when the committee began asking more specific and more potentially damaging questions, the CIA, then under the leadership of George H.W. Bush, issued a blanket statement that it would stop directly employing journalists and quietly directed the committee to change the focus of its inquiry. I thought that it was a matter of uh, real concern that planted stories intended to serve a national purpose abroad um, came home and were circulated here and believed here because uh, this would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. And we're looking at that very carefully. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. Over the years, numerous specific examples of the agency's manipulation of the news media have surfaced, including multiple instances where stories that had been outright fabricated by CIA assets had resulted in the justification for military intervention. In the 1980s, for instance, a story about Russian MiGs being delivered to Nicaragua appeared on the front page of the New York Times. A CIA analyst turned whistleblower David McMichael later revealed this had been completely made up, but was reported as fact as a way of manipulating public opinion to support U.S. intervention in the region. How about this for a story? Just under a year ago, the Americans discovered a Soviet freighter carrying MiG fighter planes, which they said were on their way to Nicaragua. Here's the story on the front of the Times. Moscow warned on Nicaraguan MiGs, and there's a picture of a MiG-21. According to President Reagan, this showed that Nicaragua was a threat to the United States. Uh, and as it turned out, this was uh, the evidence for this was based on satellite photography, which showed crates at an East European port uh, facility, uh, which were determined to be, in the science of cratology, the uh, crates of the sort in which MiG aircraft uh, frequently were shipped. And subsequent photographs a day or two later uh, showed that these crates had, were no longer on the dock. And an amazing uh, leap of logic it, uh, was advanced that necessarily they must have been uh, delivered to, to Nicaragua or were on their way to be delivered to Nicaragua. Well, the, you know, it's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with 
is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. This nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. In an infamous story from the 1970s revealed by CIA whistleblower John Stockwell, a story about rapes committed by Cuban soldiers in Angola, which was widely reported around the world, had in fact been completely made up by CIA assets in the press. So he came up with another story, which he in fact kept going for weeks, and it was a good story in terms of the CIA's propaganda interests. He had some Cuban soldiers uh, raping some young Angolan girls. Uh, then there was a battle, and he had uh, that Cuban unit cut off and captured. And then he had the Cuban women, the victims, identifying their rapists. And then there was a trial, and they were convicted. And then he had them executed by a firing squad of the women who had supposedly been violated with photographs of, of, of young African women with uh, weapons shooting down these Cubans. Uh, there had never been a rape. There had never been the military action. The Cubans had never been captured. Uh, it was all fiction. Stockwell did extremely well with this story. Here's the Daily Express of March the 12th, 1976. Gun girls execute Cuban rapists is the headline. And quoting from UNITA, it says that 17 Cubans were executed, five of whom had been identified as the people who had raped four African women a few weeks before. And here's the evening standard, with a bit more convincing detail, saying the Cubans were shot with their own guns. And here's the Daily Telegraph, the newspaper of record, adding a bit more detail, identifying the region from which the women came and saying that they took part in the executions. The reporter was John Bullock. I haven't the faintest idea where it was true and I never said it was true. I reported somebody as saying that, as telling me that story. I certainly didn't report the facts. <laughs> a journalist using I certainly didn't report the facts as an excuse, essentially, is such a perfect clip that it should actually be entered into the Corbett Report Hall of Fame clips, along with there's never been a conspiracy in this country. Old timers will remember that one. Um, I should definitely put together a Hall of Fame Corbett Report clips, and that should be one of them. Thank you, Mr. John Bullock of the Paper of Record, the Daily Telegraph. Anyway, all of that as, as taken, I, I, again, I'm sure by this point you all have some pieces of this puzzle from all of the many sources of information from which we can definitively state and point to the on-the-record manipulation of the news media by the CIA. Is it manipulation if the press is willing accomplices is, I guess, the more deeply philosophical question. But as I say, it comes not only from things like the church committee hearings and the revelations, or almost on the doorstep of revelations that came out from them. It comes from reports like what Carl Bernstein was writing in the 1970s. It comes from the documentable whistleblowers, the CIA insiders who have talked about this over the years. For example, as mentioned in that previous report, David McMichael, John Stockwell, there's plenty of videos of John Stockwell out there with more details uh, from his perspective about what was going on in the CIA. And you have other whistleblowers and insiders who are interestingly making the rounds again, courtesy of everyone's favorite NSA slash CIA, but we never mentioned that for some reason, whistleblower Edward Snowjob, who in fact just tweeted just this past week in here in November of 
the year of our Lord 2022, that the most important video of the year was filmed in 1983. Can you recall the names of any of the uh, correspondents uh, you, uh, you used in that manner? Used as a loaded term, the correspondents we targeted were those who had terrific influence, the most uh, respected journalists in Saigon, like Robert Chaplin of the New Yorker magazine, Kai's Beach uh, of the Los Angeles Times from time to time, and also he worked for the Chicago Daily News. Uh, Bud Merrick of U.S. News and World Report, uh, Malcolm Brown of the New York Times, uh, even Maynard Parker of Newsweek magazine. Uh, we would uh, go after these gentlemen. Uh, I would uh, be directed to cultivate them, to spend time with them at uh, the Caravelle Hotel or the Continental Hotel, to socialize with them, and, and slowly but surely to try to gain their confidence by dolloping out uh, valid information, information which was true. And then I would drop in a, into a conversation the data that we wanted to get across which might not be true. Uh, one piece of data, for instance, uh, that uh, we managed to plan in the New Yorker magazine had to do with uh, a supposed North Vietnamese effort in 1973 to develop airfields along the border of South Vietnam. The reason we wanted to plant this information was that uh, we were trying to persuade the U.S. Congress that Saigon should uh, be continued to, uh, should continue to get a great deal of aid. Uh, and that uh, the North Vietnamese were the chief violators of the ceasefire accord. That was printed in uh, the New Yorker magazine under the byline of Robert Chaplin, as indeed was a great deal of such information which, uh, which we tried to circulate. And who can forget that blockbuster 1977 New York Times report uh, from December of 77 that I covered on Propaganda Watch blowing open the CIA's mighty Wurlitzer of their global propaganda network. You might have heard this referred to as the mighty Wurlitzer or Wisner's Wurlitzer, um, but this goes into some degree of explanation as to what that was and what it consisted of. And it starts with a little, uh, a little example of some of the information they uncovered, talking about John Kenneth Galbraith, who in 1961 uh, took up a post as American ambassador to India and immediately discovered a rag of ill repute, a horrible political journal that he said was uh, it wasn't even so offensive for its political views as its butchery of the English language, its literary offenses. <laughs> but then he discovered it was a CIA-funded uh, operation, and then he worked with the CIA to get it shut down. At least that's the story that they open with. But then it goes on to detail a little, a little bit more about the scope of this operation that was not just about one political rag in India. It was much deeper than that. It goes on to say, although the CIA has employed dozens of American journalists working abroad, a three-month inquiry by a team of reporters and researchers for the New York Times has determined that, with a few notable exceptions, they were not used by the agency to further its worldwide propaganda campaign. So, of course, right off the bat and right putting it there on the table, oh, don't worry, guys, this wasn't used to further <laughs> the CIA's worldwide propaganda campaign, this network of propagandists that we're about to document. It's a strange thing to put right up and front front and center, but I think that is the self-evidently obvious limited hangout in this. 
but it does go on to then to detail and talk in great uh, in great detail and with a lot of um, uh, supporting facts about this propaganda network. It says, in its persistent efforts to shape world opinion, the CIA has been able to call upon a separate and far more extensive network of newspapers, news services, magazines, publishing houses, broadcasting stations, and other entities over which it has at various times had some control. A decade ago, when the agency's communications empire was at its peak, it embraced more than 800 news and public information organizations and individuals. According to one CIA official, they ranged in importance from Radio Free Europe to a third-string guy in Quito who could get something in the local paper. Although the network was known officially as the Propaganda Assets Inventory, to those inside the CIA, it was Wisner's Wurlitzer. Frank G. Wisner, who is now dead, was the first chief of the agency's covert action staff. And then under the subhead, like the mighty Wurlitzer. Almost at the push of a button, or so Mr. Wisner would like to think, the Wurlitzer became the means for orchestrating, in almost any language, anywhere in the world, whatever tune the CIA was in a mood to hear. Much of the Wurlitzer is now dismantled. Wink, wink. Yeah, sure. Disclosures in 1967 of some of the CIA's financial ties to academic, cultural, and publishing organizations resulted in some cutbacks. And more recent disclosures of the agency's employment of American and foreign journalists have led to a phasing out of relationships with many of the individuals and news organizations overseas. Yeah, sure. <laughs> But then it goes on to say, a smaller network of foreign journalists remains, and some undercover CIA men may still roam the world, disguised as correspondents for obscure trade journals or business newsletters. The CIA's propaganda operation was first headed by Tom Braden, who is now a syndicated columnist. Now, as I say, you'll already be familiar with this information, and you will be verbally scoffing along with me. Uh, as I was there on Propaganda Watch in 2020, reading through the New York Times limited hangout and the way they were trying to cover up the story that they were reporting on, um, by uh, because you would already know that it's a laughable and ridiculous cover-up of the truth. Of course, we know, again, from documentable CIA insiders like Ralph McGeehee, more on whom later, uh, that everyone in the CIA knew that this propaganda network that had been constructed uh, by Wisner and was being forwarded and carried on and expanded under people like William Casey. Uh, this was not constructed for no reason. <laughs> it was constructed to spread propaganda, white propaganda, which of course doesn't need cover, gray propaganda and black propaganda. We all know the difference between that, right? White propaganda, the U.S. government coming out with propaganda. It's the U.S. government saying this. This is uh, the imprimatur of the U.S. government. Gray propaganda, planting information here and there from anonymous sources. Where does this information come from? It's unclear. Black propaganda, trying to pretend to be someone else, essentially false flag propaganda, tr trying to put something out and saying, look, th the Chinese government said this, and it's actually a CIA press release or what have you. Um, there are various sorts, and it's been talked about by insiders, and it, this is precisely what this propaganda network was used for, for things like planting a story in foreign media and then getting the American media to go, hey, look, the foreign media just reported this story over here, and then uh, getting your agents in other places to confirm key parts of the story. Again, you will know all of this because you are familiar with this. And of course, the old canard that was played back in the 1970s and continues to this day, oh yes, there was all that kind of stuff that happened back in the day, but that's 
that's all history. That's all old news. It all got exposed and the CIA stopped working on it, right? And we know, again, from the documentable uh, accounts of first-hand accounts of uh, people like Udo Ulfkote. I'm sure people remember when he was going around writing a book about how he had been used when it, during his time as an MSM reporter in Germany as a mouthpiece for CIA NATO propaganda that was being basically written and, and handed to him, and then he would put it out under his own name. He admitted to all of this, and then suddenly died of a heart attack back before that was a popular thing to do. Again, you will know all about this, right? That is CIA and the news media 1.0. And there's a lot of important history there. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't think about this, look at it, research it. Absolutely, we should. But I'm taking all that for granted. We all know all of this at, in, at, by this point, right? But do we know about CIA and the news media 2.0? Because that old propaganda tactic is still, as I say, it still exists and is still functioning and we would be naive to believe otherwise. But there's a new tactic that is so remarkably simple <laughs> that it's absolutely flabbergasting that anyone would think to do it. And yet they have. And you hopefully do already know about CIA and the news media 2.0 and what this operation consists of. If you have been students of my online mass media, a history course, Available now at New World Next Week, the six-plus-hour lecture series on the history of mass media, which, of course, includes a uh, healthy dollop of a segment about the CIA and the news media 1.0 and that type of information we just looked at, and the new iteration of it, CIA and the news media 2.0. And even if you haven't watched the entire course, you will know about this from the preview of that course that I gave back in episode 420 of this podcast. So this happened, and thank, thank goodness it's over, right? I mean, this doesn't happen anymore because this all happened and it was exposed in the church committee and the family jewels and all that, and it's done, right? I mean, could you imagine if, say, the ex-director of the CIA was currently a contributor to MSNBC? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Or could you imagine if a former FBI, a, FBI agent was now an active national security contributor to NBC News? Or if the former FBI special agent was now the CNN political analyst, or a former Homeland Security official was a CNN national security analyst, or a former DEA administrator, administrator was an MSNBC legal and political analyst with his own podcast. Check it out, folks. Or James Baker, former FBI general counsel, if he was a CNN legal analyst, or if Francis Townsend, the former Homeland Security agent, ad, advisor for George W. Bush, was now CBS News senior security and law enforcement analyst, or if a retired CIA chief of Russia operations was a CNN national security analyst, or if the retired FBI supervisory special agent James Gagliano was now the CBS News security and law enforcement analyst, or if Philip Mudd, the former CIA counterterrorism official, was now the CNN counterterrorism analyst. That would be crazy, wouldn't it, guys? Oh, yeah. Okay. It is crazy. Yeah. But in a way, maybe this even speaks to the propaganda model. Because in this case, I mean, when we talk about CIA and the media and Bernstein and those revelations and Paley and those kinds of people working behind the scenes, essentially, with the agency, at least that was behind the scenes. I mean, that was conspiracy. But this, this is out in the open. I mean, no one's denying that Philip Mudd was the former CIA counterterrorism official who is now a CNN counterterrorism analyst or any of those other things. That's all part of their public biography. And most people don't care. 
I find that interesting. That's a sort of moving on in this relationship, isn't it? Um, to the point where now, of course, as I'm sure you've seen in the last several years of topsy-turvy, up is down, black is white, cats marrying dogs. Now, now, hey, the FBI and the CIA are trusted sources of news and information because they're against that Trump guy or whatever. It's been a crazy ride in the last few years. And again, maybe that speaks to the uh, the propaganda model that uh, Chomsky and Herman were forwarding. You don't need the under the table hidden conspiracy in the sh- smoky back room. It's just the way it works. And no one thinks to question it. Who else are you going to be to get as your counterterrorism analyst other than a former counterterrorism official? I mean, there is a logic to that, isn't there? So why not? Anyway, I think it's important to um, at least note that that took place, is taking place, continues to take place, will presumably always take place as long as these media organizations exist in the form that they do. It's remarkable, isn't it? (laughs) Here we are in 2022, and I guess the big brainstorm idea there in the bowels of the CIA and the other intelligence agencies was, hey guys, why are we sneaking around? Why are we pretending? Why are we in the back corners and back alleys handing this information over in the dark and getting it filtered through legitimate journalists? Why don't we just appear on all these news networks under our own names and just tell people who we are and they'll still believe us. <laughs> and here we are. And you know what? I guess it's true. So I guess that raises the question, what are these literal, admitted, not undercover, totally out in the open agents of the deep state saying in their positions as media analysts and correspondents? Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking over. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we... We don't do that now, though. We don't mess around other people's elections, Joe. (laughs) Only for a very good cause. Can you do that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for a very good cause in the interests of democracy. All right. Thanks for being here. Sam, the idea of preserving heritage taps into historically darker times, certainly. Not only that, though, you say what we heard from the president in in those remarks also could pose a national security concern. Well, Anna, his statement makes me sick. On a personal level, preserving our heritage, reclaiming our heritage, that sounds a lot like a certain leader that killed members of my family and about six million other uh, Jews in the 1940s. I think in general what he wants to do is to portray WikiLeaks as unbiased in, in terms of where it receives information and not mm-hmm. a paid party receiving stuff from uh, Russian security services. So I think there's an effort to protect WikiLeaks from a pedophile who lives in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But I think the reality is, is that what you're seeing, all this activity by the FBI, by law enforcement to go after and arrest people, that's all great. But that's all right of the boom. And in intelligence, you really want to be left of the boom. You want to be way out ahead of the events. And I think we're going to have to reset our entire uh, intelligence approach to these uh, white supremacist militias, these dangerous uh, ultra-nationalist organizations. I think we're going to have to look at a greater surveillance of them. Uh, the FBI is going to have to run confidential sources. We're going to have to penetrate these plots long before they present a violent threat to our democracy if we want to have any hope of uh, stopping these in the future. Director Brennan, let me start with you. Because you've sat in both these chairs as a Homeland Security Advisor to a president 
and as the head of our CIA. And I wonder what you make of this morning in testimony, almost buried, really, with all this sort of flood of headlines today, that the joint address to Congress, which is yet to be scheduled, remains a target for the extremists. Well, Nicole, I think it's just the most recent evidence that there are groups of deeply disturbed individuals who live in a world of conspiracy theories, who use violence in order to seek the aims that they're after, to include violence being perpetrated against the capital of this country. And so what we saw on January 6th, obviously, was the manifestation of this built-up anger that these individuals have, fed by a number of politicians, including by Donald Trump, unfortunately, that just led to the ransacking of the Capitol on the 6th of January. But I think what we heard today was continued evidence that these individuals have plans to carry out these heinous acts of violence to kill individuals, again, to try to undermine the democratic institutions of our government and to murder as many of our government officials as they can. Deeply disturbing, and this is something that really needs to be a wake-up call to those law enforcement and security organizations that have that responsibility to protect the Capitol, but also to our government leaders, especially members of Congress, who continue to give air to these conspiracy theories, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> that's right. They are using their position in the media to just spew the propaganda directly now and to tell people what to think and how to think and what's it's it's remarkable it is truly an amazing trick in a sense perhaps one of the most remarkable at all it's as if the magician went on stage and was doing their big act and everyone knew their act and it was all very impressive and smoke and mirrors and hey uh, how did he do that and then the magician came out and it's like okay i'm done being a magician just took off the robes took away the smoke and mirrors literally did the trick right in front of everybody and people still believe the trick <laughs> you know, like here's how it's done and wow that's amazing <laughs> it's it is truly remarkable it speaks to a couple of factors, one of which was identified by one of those CIA whistleblower insiders who was talking about this, presumably in the 1980s, when this was an issue where presumably people would think if you came out and revealed that, oh, you know, a lot of this information is being cooked up behind the scenes by intelligence agencies and then handed off and laundered through the, uh, the mainstream media that you guys all trust, people would lose the trust. That was the assumption that these whistleblowers were working on, right? And so you have people, as we've looked at John Stockwell and others, David McMichael, but people like Ralph McGeehy and he had a really interesting, there's a, a, a several minutes long interview clip that is available online. I will, of course, put it in the show notes for today. I would suggest you check it out. It goes through exactly how this works and, and validates and confirms what all of the other whistleblowers were talking about. But in the course of this interview, the interviewer and Ralph McGee, he make it an important point, which is that, of course, this, this whole propaganda system wouldn't function without the active complicity and cooperation of the press itself. How does the CIA, uh, the CIA, how does the CIA develop its relationship with the press? Well, it happens on many levels in many different ways. It could be a, a uh, director of agency uh, contact with a publisher, or it could be uh, a lower-level agency employee with a lower-level person or managing editor, per se. Or it could be hiring um, agent people, agency people, and placing them in the news uh, organization. 
or it could be uh, giving information to a reporter and winning his goodwill. It, it could be just a, a friendship sort of basis. It sort of covers the skein of relationships that you can have, you know, in any, any social situation. Um, this this uh, relationship demands participation on the part of the press, though, does it not? Oh, of course. Well, how does it participate? It can participate in many ways. It can uh, publish articles that the agency wants published. Knowingly publish it because the CIA, CIA wants it done or oh, unknowingly? Yes. Uh, well, both. Uh, unknowingly, most of the time, I would guess. And uh, sometimes the information is passed to a reporter as valid information, a good scoop, if you will, when it's just a planted uh, propaganda. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, the agency uses the, the press in, in, in numerous ways to, to achieve its, what I call, illusion-building uh, properties. When you were uh, with the CIA in Vietnam, did you have any direct uh, connection with the press? No, I didn't. I do know of the case of the, uh, the press in Saigon in uh, the early 50s, where they were meeting directly with Colonel Lansdale, five members of the most prestigious newspapers in the United States, were meeting with Colonel Lansdale, the, the uh, agency's man in Saigon. And, uh, How often would they meet? Um, quite frequently. I don't know the exact frequency. But you will look at the press coverage for that era, and you'll find no mention of agency activities in the press. Yet the agency was totally responsible for the creation of the Diem regime. It, uh, it created the Diem regime. It uh, built an illusion about the Diem regime. And it used the press to sell the illusion to the United States, the illusion that lives, lives on today in the United States. Do you think that those five members of whom you speak had any idea that they were being used? You have to, the atmosphere of those, those days where the press and the government were so in tune on the, uh, the issues that I, I believe the, it was, it was uh, a very much a cooperative effort more than a, a using effort. The press viewed the situation uh, as the government did and, and both cooperated in, in putting across the stories. The CIA was a, were good folks to, with the, which one could be associated? Was that what you're saying at that time? At or that time, yes, yes. Uh -huh. As I say, that full conversation with Ralph McGee, definitely worth your time and attention. So check it out. It will be in the show notes along with everything else. But as I say, I think the point, one key point raised there is that, yes, of course, the, the newspapers and TV stations and what have you, they knew they were being used and knew, often knew that the source they were getting information from was CIA. This was not a, a, a necessarily a cover that journalists didn't know about. They knew they were laundering CIA information and they were playing quid pro quo with information and trading and what have you. So this is an, an open and acknowledged relationship that it has existed for decades and still demonstrably still exists today as now the news agencies just openly hire these ex-intelligence officials to be their intelligence analysts. And as I say, there's a certain logic to it. Who else are you going to get to be an intelligence analyst other than former intelligence analyst or agent who's now an analyst, right? Well, I guess it makes sense to a certain degree, but only if they are talking about it from that meta level of, this is probably what the intelligence agency is trying to do, and they're trying to manipulate things this way. But of course, they don't come out with that. They just say exactly what their old masters would want them to say, right? That is what we expect, because 
again, at this point, I think everyone understands that this is a, a complicity of the press with the intelligence agencies. The only thing that I guess has really changed between CIA and the news media 1.0 and 2.0 is the public's position in all of this. Because at one point, the public could have at least claimed plausible deniability. I had no idea that there was such a relationship. Uh, I've never heard any whistleblower ever talk about this before. They could at least claim that. But now it's right out in the open. You are getting this information from people who are or were directly in these intelligence agencies. And you're still going to believe it, right? Yeah, it's a powerful... Again, I want to say it's a trick, but it's actually the opposite of a trick. <laughs> it's coming out 100% and saying, you know, this is where it's coming from. In a sense, maybe it's going from that kind of black or gray propaganda into the white propaganda. Now we know, yes, this is the former head of the Department of Homeland Security who's now a an analyst on MSNBC or what have you, right? So... In a sense, if the public has been conditioned to simply trust trust these intelligence agencies. So there's an entire psychological dimension to all of this, which is truly fascinating. But <laughs> you think we're going to stop at CIA and the news media 2.0? No, 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 no. Even 2.0 is yesterday's news, almost literally. Because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, yes, we're in the realm of newspapers and TV, MSNBC or Fox or whatever. But who in the audience who doesn't have many, many gray hairs actually gets their news from the dinosaur media at this point? No, 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 no. That's not how people get their news anymore. People get their news online through various online outlets and through social media, right? So, hmm... I wonder if there is some sort of relationship that is carried on between the intelligence agencies and the new online media. Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> well, let, let's all speculate about that. Of course, I have done work on this subject in the past, so you can start boning up on that question. But that is going to be an exploration for a future edition of this podcast, the CIA and the News Media 3.0. Stay tuned and look forward for that. In the meantime, there is plenty of information that I have dropped in today's podcast that I think you would definitely, well, it would be worth your time and attention to check out. So, of course, as always, everything that I say will be in the show notes for today's episode of the podcast with a handy-dandy time documentation timestamp link so that when he says this at 40 minutes and 26 seconds, is going to be there at 40 minutes and 26 seconds, etc. You guys know how that works, and you also know that as... Corbett Report members, you can log into the CorbettReport.com website and leave your comments in the comments for this episode of the podcast. All that being said, uh, I thank you for joining me and spending your time here in this exploration. And I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future. Come on, come on. I mean, come on. This is, this is, there has never been a conspiracy in this country.